Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about stories containing people's first impressions of Jesus. Before it plays, I want to make you aware of something that is happening in our church right now. Like for many churches, COVID and everything connected to it was really hard. As I've mentioned before, due to not being allowed to use the school we normally meet in, we had to do church from eight locations in 13 months. On top of that, about a third of our congregation moved out of the state. Despite the challenges though, God has continued to move in our church. We are growing, people are getting baptized, and we're even finding new ways to serve our community. In fact, we're working this year with another organization to provide children who have been victims of human trafficking a good Christmas. Here's the reality. Despite the good taking place in our congregation, the challenges of the last year have made money really tight. Right now, we are doing a fundraiser to make up for the deficit that we plan for in our budget. Thankfully, someone has graciously offered to match the first $5,000 donated. That means for every dollar donated, $2 will come to our church. So here's my big ask. If you are in a position to make a donation, it would be incredibly helpful to our church and the future of our ministry. I know that not everyone can do this, and I really don't want you to feel guilty if you can't. But if you can make a donation, a donation of any size, we would appreciate it so much. If this is true for you, you can go to creekside.me donate. Make sure to select the matching fundraiser when you choose where to give. Every single dollar will help us to continue to move forward as a church that helps people experience and express God's glory. One more time, the website is creekside.me donate. Again, thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Today we finish a series of sermons on first impressions of Jesus. It's the least Christmassy sermon series I've ever done during the month of December. Uh, thank you for not complaining about that. But I do hope as you know, we've gone through this and as we finish that that we would, uh, and you know, for the first two series in the book of John, I hope that, that we would really just think about how great this Jesus is whose birth that we celebrate during the Christmas season and all of the surroundings. Sometimes, you know, at Christmas, don't we get caught up in, in maybe the surroundings of Jesus' birth and not necessarily who Jesus is? Like, we celebrate, you know, the, the the angels and the shepherds and the wise men in the manger and, you know, kind of the whole deal. But sometimes, you know, the, the baby actually that's being laid in the manger can be the forgotten piece of it all. And I, and I just hope, my hope is that as we, as we finish this today, we would, we would, you know, remember that, that it's about the one who was in the manger. And specifically today, I think that that there is this really important theme that finds its way into the Gospel of John for the first time, and it's going to be a really important theme throughout. And, and I think, you know, at Christmas or whenever, it's, it's a big idea for all of us because uh, the theme is, is really the idea of or the connection between seeing and believing. And I think that all of us, we feel like we would believe or we would believe more in this 
Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas if we could just see some stuff. Like if we could just, you know, see a miracle, if we could have walked around with him while he was on earth, if we could, if we could see, you know, the signs and wonders, then maybe we would believe or we would believe more. And, you know, for some people, and we'll come back to belief later, but, but for some people that's like believe and, you know, the, the big sense, like commit their lives to Jesus. And then there's others of us who are Christians and we believe that Jesus is, you know, all the things that we've seen in the book of John so far, that he's the savior of the world. But we struggle to to believe, you know, in the small moments of life, like when it says that God is with us or that God's going to take care of us, even when, you know, things are bad, it's hard to believe. And we think, oh, I'd believe more if I, if I just could witness some things. And Here's what we're going to see in this story, and then uh, I would just uh, tell you that if you're going to stick around with us as we move through the entire gospel of John over the next few months, that that maybe keep this somewhere in the back of your head as a theme because it'll become even more clear as the the gospel of John moves along. And and here's, here's kind of the big idea. Seeing doesn't always result in believing and Believing isn't require, or it doesn't require seeing. Uh, be- seeing doesn't always result in believing, and believing doesn't require seeing. You don't need to see to believe. And the reality is, if you think you'll believe because you'll, you'll see, it's not necessarily true. You might not believe anyway. And that's exactly what this passage, this story, is about. And here's how it begins in John 4, 43. After two days, he left for Galilee, if you weren't with us last week, I talked about this story where, where John, where Jesus was in the uh, the area of Samaria, and he had this encounter with this woman at the well, and we talked about how the story uh, shows us this idea that Jesus cares desperately about our souls. I'm sorry, my knee just all of a sudden felt like something is different, and it's like clicking and hurts a little bit, and it came out of nowhere, uh, and you see me doing this. I'm, I was trying to wiggle it out, and I was, you know, I'm just telling you because at some point, me dancing up here is going to be a distraction. Uh, like, he's really into this one today, but uh, can I just stretch for a second, and we'll see if uh, my knee feels normal. I don't even know what I've said so far. It's all I've really thought about since the beginning. Every step, click, click, click. Uh, but last week, we talked about this woman at the well, and we talked about how it shows us that Jesus cares desperately about our souls and sometimes we're so focused on the, the things that we can see and touch and feel that we actually don't take the blessings that he offers for our soul. We're so focused on our circumstances that, that we actually don't grasp all that he would have for our souls. And so he heads out of Samaria and he comes back to Galilee. And, and this is what we read next in verses 44 and 45. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. 
Now, this is the weird part, and, and I, I, preaching on passages like this is always weird. Like, when you open up a commentary, which is just a, a book that makes comments by a smart guy writes a book, it comments on these passages, and when you open it up, and, the, and every one you read, it begins with, there's a lot of debate about this passage. You're like, man, this is going to be a long week, right? And, and that's, that's what happened here in these verses. These verses are... Uh, not controversial necessarily, but they are widely debated because they almost don't seem to make sense on first glance. And, and the reason for that, there's a lack of clarity on what the author of John is actually trying to say. And the lack of clarity comes from a couple of, of places here. First, this idea about a prophet not having honor in his hometown in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's actually connected to Nazareth. And so now he moves into Cana, not Nazareth, a city, another city in the region of Galilee. And this, this statement is made about a prophet not being honored in their hometown. And this is not, this is not Jesus' hometown. And so like, why, why is this inserted here? That's, that's the question number one that, that you know, we need to answer for the sake of clarity. And, and then the second thing that makes this weird is it says a prophet is not, you know, without honor except for in his hometown. And then the very next verse, it says the Galileans welcomed him with open arms. And it's like, well, he sure seems welcomed in this moment, in this situation. I mean, in the other places when it's said, like the people are really mad at Jesus. So in the synoptic gospels, when, when this idea arises, like people are ticked off at him. But here it's like, hey, not honored in your hometown. And wow. They were just so excited to see him come back. And it's like, why? Like, what is happening in, in, in these two verses? And there are at least 10 different explanations that scholars, smarter people than me, come to as far as the, you know, why these verses land here and what's the point and, like, how do we answer those two questions I've already brought up? And I just want to present to you one. Uh, I think you'd be bored out of your mind if I tried to present 10, uh, and this is the one that I think is the best. Here, John is breaking from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that he is referring to Jesus' own country in regards to Israel in general and not Nazareth specifically. Now, I know, you're, you're thinking, I would be thinking if I was sitting there, I don't care about any of this. Like, what does this have to do with my life? And like, are you going to make a point today, Chad? Or are you just up there talking about a debate? And, and I think this, uh, just bear with me for one more, two more minutes. I was going to say seconds, but that would have been a lie. But bear with me for one or two more minutes because I think it's really important to understanding the passage. So Israel in general, not Nazareth specifically. That's the first thing. And then the second thing that I think is really important here is that the people are welcoming him in Galilee because they have seen miracles and they've been really impressed with those miracles. Now, remember, he's just come from Samaria uh, and I've told you the story. He meets this woman at the well, and, and this woman has this conversation with Jesus, and she's like, maybe I found the Messiah, and then, you know, because he tells her about the state of her soul, really, and then she goes back. Listen to how the story ends in, in John 4, 39 through 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days and listen to this, listen to this line, because of his words, 
many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. They believed because of his words. And what's happening in Galilee is so different than that. These people don't believe in him. And they don't believe despite the fact that they are seeing him do miracles. And when they show up with welcoming arms, this is what scholars believe. I think it's true. They're not showing up to worship him as the savior of the world. They're showing up and welcoming him because they want to see more signs. They want to see cool things. They want to see miracles. We'll see later in the book of John. People are just showing up because they want to get free meals from him. Once they realize he has the power to create food from virtually nothing, they're like, hey, let's hang out with this guy. So what seems to be happening here is that the author of John is setting up a contrast between the Samaritans who believe because they've heard Jesus talk and the Galileans who want to see miracles and have seen miracles, but choose not to really believe in him anyway, or at least believe in him as the savior of the world. That's the contrast here. D.A. Carson says this, miracles cannot compel genuine faith. I think that's at the heart of this passage is you have these Samaritans who are, who are some, you know, the ones that were getting a lot of things wrong about the Old Testament and their place in Israelite history, but they hear Jesus and believe. And then you have these Galileans who see Jesus do a whole bunch of cool things and really never come to believe at least before Jesus' death and resurrection. The Samaritans believed because of who Jesus is. The Galileans didn't believe despite seeing what Jesus could do. And I think that's something that all of us have to wrestle with. We can spend our whole lives looking for, whole, whole entire lives, years after years, looking for more and more miracles and still not believing. Or we can look to who Jesus is and choose to trust him with who we are. Seeing does not always result in believing and believing doesn't require seeing. It just doesn't require it. In John 4, 46, it says, once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. Now, this seems just like a little footnote. Like, okay, he's back where that miracle happened at the wedding where the water was turned into wine, but it actually seems to be the ending of a section in this book, a section that begins with the story of Jesus turning water into wine, a story that we read and, and talked about here, and it said it was the first of many signs, right? And now here, listen to the, how our passage ends. I won't read it again later, but in John 4, 54, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. John wants us to see that this is the conclusion of a mini section that is contained within his letter or book, the Gospel of John. And so what is the point of this section? Well, the, the point of this section is that people should believe in Jesus. Now, I mentioned this, but it, it bears repeating in, in the Gospel of John, in the Bible, 
belief is not mentally asserting something to be true. And this is, this is a really big idea. Belief is not just thinking that something is true. It is placing your faith in something. It is placing your life upon someone, as it turns out, and that is Jesus. Belief isn't just thinking Jesus can do a miracle. It's saying that you're going to trust in Jesus to do the miracle if it is in your best interest. Believing isn't just saying, I think that Jesus is the savior of the world. That sounds good. It's saying, you know what? I will place my whole entire life in your hands. I will move from being of Adam into Christ. I will trust you completely with my life and with my soul eternally. It's giving yourself fully to Jesus because you mentally assert that it is true that he is the savior of the world. That is belief. And in our passage specifically, what John wants us to hear is that that belief needs to happen without seeing. It happens without seeing. At the end of this gospel or near the end of this gospel, there's this particularly famous story about this guy named Thomas, who's one of Jesus' followers and disciples and and he's not there when Jesus is resurrected and then shown up to the other 11 disciples other 10 disciples and and so Thomas is like I'll I'll believe when I see I'll believe when I see and in John 20 29 it says this then Jesus told him because you have seen me you have believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed I think we think that if we could just see more, we would believe more. And, and the story that we're about to read is really an illustration of this idea that, that John is concluding this Cana section with, and that is that, that we don't need to see to believe. And in fact, in fact, the story of Jesus' life suggests that seeing a whole bunch will never result in believing. We, we must choose to believe in Jesus because we come to believe in who he is. We must choose, to, and I know I use the word believe twice. We must believe in Jesus. We must come to a place where we give ourselves to Jesus, where we follow Jesus, where we live for Jesus, where we commit our lives to Jesus, not because we've seen a bunch, but because we look at who he is and we say, this is the only hope. This guy is, is the only hope only savior that this world knows. Now, this story really illustrates this in a very physical way, a way that we can understand. Here's what John 4, 46 and 47 says. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And so here we have this royal official. We don't know anything about him, but lots of people have theorize certain things about him. He was probably in the service of a king, and that king in this moment would have been Herod Antipas, which it was not, he was not actually a king. He was just kind of accepted as a king because of the power that he had. Uh, and we don't know if he was a Jew or not, but he was probably a wealthy guy who was very influenced by Greco-Roman culture, whether he was Jewish or not. And that would mean that he wasn't very religious, at least in regards to Judeo-Christianity or just Judaism at the time. Uh, like he, he wasn't probably a very religious Old Testament believing 
person. And, and what's interesting about that is that he comes to Jesus not because he just wants to see a sign. He seems to come to Jesus just out of desperation. Like, I have a sick son. He's dying, and I want you to do something about it. And he comes from Capernaum, which is 18 to 22 miles from Cana, where Jesus is. And he, he goes to Jesus, and he begs Jesus. And, and then Jesus seems to see this as an opportunity to talk to the crowd as a whole, and not just this man, this you that you're about to hear in John 4, 48 through 50 is a plural you, which is like y'all or you guys in the Northwest, like, hey, you guys. And so Jesus turns his attention to the crowd. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Jesus looks at the people and he's like, hey, you guys are never going to believe unless you see signs and wonders. He offers this rebuke to the crowds that have shown up because they want to see miracles. Not because they're interested in having their lives changed by Jesus, but because they want to see cool things happen. And Jesus is like, man, it's you're never going to believe unless I just keep doing things for you. And as it turns out, you're not going to believe anyway. Uh, I think that's more at the heart of what Jesus is saying. You're not going to come to believe in me as Savior because I do a whole bunch of neat things for you, a whole bunch of things that make your life a little bit better, that feed you for a moment, that heal the people that you love. You're not going to believe because of these things. This man, it's funny, he's like totally not interested in this, I think, theological discourse. He's like, this is how I picture it. It's not in the Bible, but this is how I, he's like, okay, but are you going to come heal my son? Like, it's like a bigger statement than this guy. He's like, just, I have a sick son. Like, I don't, whatever this crowd is here for, that has, you know, no matter to my life, but I have a sick son. Now, he asked Jesus to come with him, and I, I just found this fascinating this week. In the ancient view of miracles, and I would say probably in our own view of miracles in some way, uh, presence was really important. Like if there was a healer, a miracle worker, they could more easily do a miracle if the person was present. And in fact, there's very few stories in the Old Testament of, of God using a person to heal somebody that, that happened from far away. And, and, and it, would, it would demonstrate extraordinary power. Now, with that in mind, think about what happens here. Think about this interaction. Jesus gives this big statement. You people, you know, you just need signs to believe. And this guy's like, just come with me and heal my son. And then what does Jesus say? Go. I mean, the answer from Jesus is, no, I will not go with you. You go. I'm not coming. You go. And your son will be healed. great illustration, right? Because here this man has no proof. Here this man does not, in the short term, get what he wants. It's not like Jesus says, here's a sign, here's some proof. He, he just says to this man, basically, believe me, walk away, and your son will be healed. And, 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 and it, it begs this question, like, are we going to believe Jesus even if there's no proof? 
Now, I would say even if there's no evidence, but I think there's tons of good evidence for why we believe Jesus. It's just not necessarily the evidence we want. We want to do things like, uh, you know, like the Old Testament story where we put a little piece of wool out and, and we say, hey, if it's wet in the morning and everything around it's dry, or if it's dry in the morning, everything's wet, then I'll believe you, Jesus. We want to say like, hey, we do this, right? Hey, Jesus, if you'll just show me something, then I'll be obedient to you. And I think a lot of people say, hey, Jesus, you know what? I actually believe that whole thing about you being the savior of the world to be true, but I'll commit my life to you. I I think it's true, but I'll actually believe. I'll commit my life to you. I'll follow you. I'll accept your salvation if you show me something. And here, Jesus is not willing to play that game. And the guy's life is an illustration. Hey, you go, I'll do it. And the guy has the, you know, what is he going to do? Is he going to walk away? Is he going to continue to beg? Is he going to believe despite not seeing or not? That's the question. The New American Commentary says, If a man had been toying with the idea of viewing Jesus as a wonder-working, cure-all magician, Jesus stopped him immediately in any such pattern of thinking. This seems to be the way for Jesus. If you're just looking for him to do sign after sign after sign in order that you might maybe choose to be his follower, he's just not interested in that. And I think what we believe is that if Jesus was interested in that, then maybe more people would give, would give their lives to him. Maybe more people would become Christians if Jesus would give these signs. And the stories of Jesus' life, including I think the one here, seem to suggest that it's just not true. It's almost like the more people saw from Jesus, miraculously speaking, the more they wanted to see but the less committed they were to his actual mission and what he wanted for their lives. Remember the woman at the well, Jesus was concerned with her soul. And it seems like the more Jesus does miracles while he walked around on earth, the less people think he's concerned about their souls and the more they want to get from him. Oh, you gave us a bunch of food? Well, we want more food. That just seems to be the pattern. And I, I think that we just wrongly believe that if we saw more, we'd believe more but it just doesn't seem to be true. And then we read this. While he was still on his way, this is the guy, his servants met with him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. It's interesting, right? Because I think, I think he kind of believed. He believed Jesus could like do a miracle, right? He, he walked away and, and the way this story plays out and the context of the story says, it seems to suggest that, that at least he might have thought that, that his son would be healed. But now he like really believes, right? Like this is seemingly a moment of conversion. Like he becomes a Jesus person. He becomes a Jesus follower, And what I love about this is that it is is one of those moments, if you've grown up in the church, you know this, it's one of those moments that Christians love to talk about. If you've been in church a decade or more, then you've heard a story where somebody says something like this, I needed a car repair. I don't know why I'm harping on the car repairs. I I gave this illustration last week, but I needed a car repair. I prayed because I only 
had five more minutes until I was going to the shop to pick it up. And on the way out, I grabbed the mail and there was a check for the exact dollar amount. You've heard this story, right? Like if you've been in church, we tell these stories, we love these stories, and, and these are great stories. I think they're underrated stories and that, that we should believe that Jesus is still doing miracles in our lives. But what I love about it here is that it absolutely is not the real point of the story. Yes, John wants us to see the power of Jesus. Yes, it, we're meant to go, wow, right? Like, wow, it's the exact time and Jesus did a miracle from a distance. I mean, this is incredible. What, uh, I mean, proof that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, the creator of all that has been created. I mean, it's proof right here, right? But even more, this wonderful story sits there saying, this guy believed before it happened, and you should believe before your miracle happens too. Now, I'm not saying believe that, that Jesus is going to do things he's never said he will do. I mean, we read all these crazy, awesome miracles in the New Testament that Jesus does while he walked around the earth. And, and what, we, what we sometimes forget is that there were still people who died and didn't come out of the grave, right? Like there were still lepers running around who weren't healed. There were still blind people and deaf people and mute people that Jesus didn't heal. It's not like everybody got healed while Jesus walked around the earth and, and we can expect Jesus to do every miracle we want him to do. That's not the point here. The point is that we believe in Jesus. We believe what Jesus has said. We believe in what Jesus can do. We believe in the most important thing in the gospel of John. We believe in who Jesus is and we commit our lives to him. And then maybe he's going to do some miracles, but he will do what he's promised. And that's take care of us and be with us and give us peace and hope and joy. Even when we don't see the miracles, the point here is that we believe apart from the sign. Jesus has the power to do anything he wants to do in your life. But seeing it happen exactly in the way you want to happen is not going to produce the belief that John is calling us into. We should believe and then we might see miracles later. The signs are not the point. Belief is the point. Belief apart from the sign is the point. That's the point here. And I just, I just, I think even, you know, more today in our culture, people think like if God would have just done exactly what I wanted him to do, then I would have, then maybe I'd give him my life. Or I think there's a lot of people, in fact, that believe mentally, they mentally assert to be true the story of the Bible, but they've never committed to him because I think you know, subconsciously almost, they're waiting for the miracle to take place in order that then they'll say, oh, I, I'll give you my life now. But John is showing us who Jesus is, even if he never does a miracle in our lives, who Jesus is. And that's worth placing our belief in. That's worth committing to. That's worth accepting, even if we don't get the miracle that we want. The reality in this story and in, I think, the New Testament as a whole is that if, if you will believe, you might get the miracle that you want. But if you get the miracle you want, it's never going to drive you to believe. And as we said last week, Jesus cares far more 
about the salvation of your soul than he does fixing the, the problem, I would say the little problem, even if it feels big, the little problem that you have in your life. One of the things that always strikes me is that everybody Jesus healed is dead now, <laughs> right? Like at some point they grew older and they died. And, and we can look at his life and say, wow, like he, he healed them and he made it so that they could see and he made it so that they could hear or talk or fit in in society. And he demonstrated them, you know, love when nobody else would love them. And how good did they have to feel? But ultimately for each and every person that Jesus encountered while he walked this earth, he made really no eternal difference in their life if they didn't come to a place of true belief where they, like the Samaritans, accepted him as the savior of the world. And what we believe as Christians is that Jesus came here not to walk around and do miracles, but in order to come, he came in order to die for our sins, for everything that we've ever done wrong. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering death and sin forever and offering eternal salvation, eternal life, to use John's word, to anybody who would believe, who would believe who would follow him, who would give their lives to him, who would declare him to be Savior and Lord of all. And we get so caught up in just him fixing a little moment in our lives that for some, it's the reason they never accept the salvation and get the salvation for eternity. They want the little problem fixed. And because Jesus doesn't fix the little problem, they don't allow him to fix eternity for them. And I hope that that's not true for any of you. But if it is, I hope that you would learn from this man who chose to believe Jesus before seeing a single thing. I hope that you would be more like the Samaritans who would, who would see the truth of Scripture And believe, even if if you've never felt or encountered God in a way that, you know, was miraculous. And for those of us who are Christians, all the more. I mean, at some point, despite, you know, not seeing everything that we want to have happen in our lives, we chose to, to lay our entire life upon him. To say, I trust you for my eternity. And so... In the midst of the struggles of life, we should continue to believe the things that he has promised. It's easy for us, I think, as as Christians to say, well, God didn't say yes to my last prayer. And then to think he doesn't care about what's going on now, but he does care. And he doesn't promise to fix it, but he promises, as I've already said a couple of times, to be with you. And he promises to... to to give you a way out if you're struggling with temptation. And he promises to to work all that you're going through for your good and for your best. He promises to love you. He promises to provide for you. And, And I would hope that none of us who have committed our entire self to Jesus would say, well, I'm not gonna believe Jesus in this moment because I haven't seen the signs and the wonders that I wanted to. And so for those of you who aren't Christians, who have never committed to Jesus, I would ask, would you just consider if that's because you haven't seen miracles? And I would offer to you this evening that even if you see miracles, it will not compel you to give 
to give your life to Jesus and to receive the salvation that he offers. Instead, you should turn to the word of God and you should look at who Jesus is. And I would hope that out of that, you would conclude that he is worth, he is worth committing to. And for those of us who are Christians, man, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're facing, just keep believing Jesus. Keep believing him even if you don't get exactly what you want because he is, he is working for your good and for your best, I would say, at least as far as your, well, for every part of your life, but he is mostly concerned with your soul and, and man, he's, he's done everything to give you what your soul needs already. So believe that he'll continue to work for your best. Let me pray that. Lord Jesus, I just... I mean, we're all guilty of this, I think. We're all guilty of, of just expecting you basically to let us be God and for you to do exactly what we want all the time. And I know from personal experience, probably most of us do, Lord, that, that oftentimes if you would have given us exactly what we wanted, then it would have been not in our best interest, Lord, because we don't have an eternal perspective. We don't have a holy perspective. We, we're short-sighted and... Uh, driven by our flesh so frequently, Lord. And, and you always have the best interest in mind of those who, who love you, Lord. And, and I pray, God, that we would always, because of that, we would believe you. And I pray for those who don't, they would believe in you, Lord. Let us who have already believed in you believe you, and let those, God, who have never believed in you believe in you too, Lord. I, I ask that, God, right now, as I conclude this sermon, that you would Speak, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit into the souls of people, and you would convict and compel and encourage and inspire every one of us, God, uh, to and towards the things that you would have us do as we reflect upon this story. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.